you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Good morning, Red Hill. If you'd remain standing for the reading of God's word with me. Today we are in 1 John chapter 5, so I'm going to let you take a few seconds to turn to there. Now, when I was reading this, preparing for today, it kept getting me a little tongue-tied, so I apologize in advance if I trip over this this morning. So 1 John chapter 5, we're going to read through verse 1 through 13. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ. He is the one who came by water and blood, Not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater, because it is God's testimony that he has given about his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Carrie. Carrie does a lot of things for us at Red Hill, but uh, I think the thing that she does best is just love Jesus. She loves God's word. I, I, like, I like when Carrie reads because it's like, it's like so intense. Like there's nothing calm about it. It's like, I just, like I'm, I'm into this. Like I love this. I just want more of it. In fact, we got a couple extra, got a couple of bonus verses there. It's, it's good information though. It's fine. You read 14 and 15, which I was thinking about including, but I don't have any notes on. So we'll just see how it goes, right? Maybe, maybe the Spirit's leading you and I'm just going to get in the stream and follow. Yeah, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Uh, our Easter series has been all about victory. It's been about the victory that Christ has won for us. And we've been kind of progressing through that, looking at what it was that Jesus was doing and what's the victory look like that he won. How did he get that victory? What did he want to get uh, as a victory? And uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about the victory that we have. How do we win? And I got to tell you, um, I really, really like winning. Like, really, really like winning. And I really, maybe even more than that, hate to lose. Like, I just hate to lose. It's not that I have to beat everyone. It's just that I have to beat anybody who's in front of me. That's sort of my mentality about just about everything that I do. And it got so bad for a while that I wouldn't do anything that I was bad at. 
I, didn't, I couldn't find any joy out of doing stuff that I couldn't like potentially win. And the way that you break yourself of that, I've found, like fully and finally break yourself of that, is to be sort of a little out of shape, slow, not suited to running, and decide to try to run a marathon. And I, I began training for a marathon. Again, the hardest part of running a marathon is figuring out how to work into every conversation and sermon that you have run a marathon. That's the most difficult piece of it. But I was training for the marathon, and Aubrey came up and asked me if I thought I was gonna win the marathon. Now, as a high school athlete, which is the full extent of the glory days of my athleticism, uh, I played golf and I wrestled, which seems like a weird combination, but it worked for me. And when I played, everybody that I competed against, there was a chance I was gonna win. I wasn't the best in the state or anything like that, but I had a chance. I ran this marathon and Aubrey asked me, do you think you're going to win? And I said, if I have the perfect race, like if I run the, the ideal race for me, the perfect race, the guy that wins could run twice and still beat me. And in fact, I had a great race and the guy that won could have run twice and would have beaten me by three minutes at the pace that he ran at. So it was like, no, I'm not going to win, but I am going to finish. And sometimes the Christian life feels like that, doesn't it? I can remember counseling with a student once who was struggling. Uh, he was struggling with an addiction to pornography. And he said, I'm just gonna struggle with this forever. I'm never gonna find any victory in my life. I'm never gonna have victory over this sin. There's nothing I can do. I've tried everything. You know, he was like, he was like Homer Simpson. You gotta help me, doc. I've tried nothing and I'm all out of ideas, right? I mean, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I've tried nothing and that didn't work. And so I guess I'm just gonna struggle and fail forever. And there is a piece of that that's a little bit true that we're always gonna face temptation, that we're always going to struggle, that we are going to have to fight against those temptations, and there, there's a piece of it that's absolutely and completely false. The idea that we are conquered by sin runs contrary to the teaching of the Bible, which says that we are more than conquerors. And if we're more than conquerors, and if we're victors, and not just victors, but the word that's used in this particular text is super victors, like hyper victorious, like basically like uber victorious, like the victor's victor, like the champion of champions, like the gold medal winner of all the gold medals, like the most valuable player of all the players out of all the people who won, he says, you're gonna be the winner of winners. You're gonna be ultimately victorious. That, that that's the birthright of every single Christian. And I'm left wondering like, how do we get that? How do we actually become victorious? How do we lay a hold of the victory that Jesus won? Can we? And if we can, how do we apprehend it for ourselves? That's what the text is about this morning. And uh, in the spirit of uh, what Carrie's done, I'm gonna back us up a couple of verses. So we'll tack a couple on the beginning and maybe a couple on the end as well. We'll see how that goes. But I wanna look back starting at verse 19 of chapter four. So just a couple of verses previous to this. And I wanna read these first few verses and look at them together. It says, we love because he first loved us. It's important to know that the primary command 
that God has for you and for me is love. That Jesus in Matthew 22, 36 through 40 was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest commandment is to love God. And the second greatest commandment is just like it, to love people. And all the law and all the prophets, like the picture frame of the law and the prophets, hangs on that single nail of love. That that is the command that we've received, to love. And the reason that we can love is because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. And so we get into the text. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. It's funny that you mentioned Carrie getting a little bit tongue-tied in this text because in the Greek, it says something like this. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been begotten of God and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one who begat the begotten. So that's what the text says, that you love the one who begat the begotten. And so this is one of those passages that you read and you're like, oh yeah, for sure, sounds great, perfect. Let's just move on to the next verse. But I think it's helpful to slow down a little bit and think through the phrasing. How, how can we know that we love someone for sure? How can we know that we are being loving towards someone? That I'm expressing love to you, that I am in fact through the words that I'm saying and the actions that I'm taking, I am loving you. There's a time when it seemed like a pretty simple proposal, but it doesn't seem so simple anymore. Sarah's youth pastor, a guy named Robert Burkhart, who's a Christian comedian, singer, songwriter, extraordinaire, unbelievably talented, my most vivid memory of him is uh, at our wedding, telling jokes and stories and laughing, but he has a song and one of the lines of the song says, how can I say I love you when I love chocolate cake? Like, how can I say to God, I love you and also say, I love chocolate cake? Like those two, how, is that how that works? When we're talking about love, do we even know what we're talking about? Those of you who are young in the congregation, those of you who are dating in the congregation, I just, I just, I wanna offer this word of encouragement and challenge to you that if you're going to say, I love you to someone, you should clarify what those words mean. And if someone says, I love you to you, you should feel comfortable having a conversation that's a little bit complicated to say, what do we mean when we say that? What does it mean for us to love someone? Any more failure to affirm every belief and truth that another person has even contradictory claims is called hatred or fear or bigotry. So if I try to love you and it doesn't get received the right way, it's loudly, broadly, publicly communicated as fear, as hatred, or as bigotry. How am I supposed to know how to love someone? How am I supposed to know if I am loving someone? And is it possible to love people without fear, that I'm gonna love them and not be afraid of the potential responses to me actually loving them. 
The Bible calls that fear the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. When we live with a fear of how people are going to respond to what we're doing, we are living in a system that has set traps everywhere. I can remember I, uh, <laughs> when I worked at a church in Memphis, one April Fool's Day, my secretary pranked me with a bunch of teenagers and they took uh, Dixie cups of water and it must have taken them hours because they filled them up and then they went in my office and starting at the back corner of my office, they filled the whole floor of my office with Dixie cups full of water. Now, my Bible and the things that I needed were on my desk on the far side of my office. And I felt like Admiral Akbar. it's a trap! You know, this is like, this is what it feels like to try to love somebody today. Like, I'm gonna try to love you. Okay, then I'm gonna be a bigot who has a phobia and who actually hates you. And I'm trying, is it possible for us to love without fear? How can we have confidence? How can we know that we're loving people? It says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. So, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Those of you who believe that Jesus is the Christ have been born into his family. You remember in John 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, Jesus says, you must be born again. This phrase is common in evangelicalism, to be born again, to be born or adopted into God's family. The fundamental, the basic requirement is that you say Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. And when that claim is the truth of your soul, then you are born into that family. You've been born of God, and everyone who loves God also loves the one born of him. Most of the time when I read this verse, I thought it was talking about, so if I love God, then I also love Jesus. But the Bible says everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves God will love the one born of God. So there is this circular commitment that takes place that if I am to love God, then I must love people. And if I am to love people, then I must love God and not just people generically or generally, but actually people who are followers of Jesus. And this is complex, complicated, and difficult. Do you know why? Here's the truth of why. There is so much potential for us as Christians to let each other down, isn't there? To hurt each other? I, I, would get, I would venture a guess, I don't know everybody in this room's story, but I would venture a guess that there's not a single adult in the room that hasn't been touched by church hurt, that hasn't been touched by betrayal and disappointment from another follower of Jesus, from a pastor, from a Christian leader, from a mentor, from someone who says, I bear the name and image of Jesus. Jesus says that those who have been born of God will love the Father. Those who love the Father will love those who are born of God. This is what love for God is, to keep his commands. I like what Dwight L. Moody says. He says, every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Here's what he means. Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Love's not just some emotion. It's not just some feeling that overcomes you. 
it's not something that's intended only for you to receive. Love is not some sort of a Disney story that allows you to know what the other person is thinking, where you finish each other's sandwiches or sentences, depending upon which Disney movie you're more familiar with. Love is not the story of someone who meets a stranger in the woods and they begin singing a duet and live happily ever after. That's not what love is. Love, we're gonna find out, has a much fuller picture than that. John, uh, just, just a few verses before this, John talks in verse 16 of chapter four. He says, God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. God is love. Love is not God, which is what the culture is telling us today, that, that love is supreme, and that love should inform all of our decisions, that love should inform all truth, and that love is the ultimate aim and the ultimate good and the ultimate, really the ultimate God and that all things exist subservient to love, and that God can only be understood by love. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say love is God, meaning that love is over God and gives a full explanation of God. It says that God is love. The meaning being this. If you want to know what love is, you have to know who God is that apart from a knowledge of God, you have no knowledge of love. The only way to get a full understanding of what love is, is to know God. God gives us the full picture of what love is. I'm gonna walk through a few verses here, just in 1 John, just in 1 John. Chapter three, verse one. John says, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are your translation might say, what a great love God has lavished on us. He's poured out this great love on us to bring us into his family. Look in chapter three, verses 16 through 20. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in speech, but in action and in truth. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Jesus' sacrifice is what reveals love and love's about action and truth, not about sentiment. Love is centered on others. Love is oriented on others, irrespective and irregardless of their merit. It originates from a person and it goes to a person. Regardless of the worth, this is how we know love. This is how we've come to know it. He laid down his life for us. First John chapter four, verses nine through 11. John says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world 
so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. God's lavish love on us by bringing us into his family. We come to know what love is by seeing the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. God's love is revealed to us in this way, that he sent his son into the world so that we might have life. And then in verses 19 through 21 again, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and his sister. God's love is the cause of our love. This is really important for us to understand. Receiving God's love is the cause of our love for others. Those who have not received God's love can't really appreciate, apprehend, or distribute love. They can distribute sentiment, they can care, they can be affectionate, they can be warm, and they can be kind, but to love someone else requires that we first receive love from God. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how love was revealed to us. God sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for us. This is how God poured out his love on us. He made us his family. And we love because he first loved us. That's why we love. That's why we love. And what does it look like when we love? When we love God, what does it look like? What does it actually look like for us to love God? It looks like us loving each other, bearing with each other, pressing past failures, disappointments, and disagreements, and saying, I still love that person. I'm still leaning in towards them. I'm still with them. It doesn't mean forever we're bound to walk hand in hand with that person in every sense of ministry and agreement possible. It means I care for their soul. I want them to know, love, and follow Jesus. And the moment that I say, I can no longer love that person who is a Christian. I have stopped receiving God's love. I've stopped loving God because I've stopped loving them. This is what the Bible says. It's a circular thing. I was like, I really need like a whiteboard to be able to write out my thoughts on this, but I didn't have a mobile whiteboard. I thought about bringing up a tear sheet, but then I was like, I don't have anything to attach it to. I forgot about the drum cage. That might've worked. That might've worked. But it's this circular thing. It's being caught in a system is what it is. It's submitting yourself to a system that says, there's really only two things God wants from me. To love him, which of course will cause me to love his other children. Anyone begotten of God is gonna love God. And anyone who loves the, the God who begats loves the begotten ones that are begat by the begotter. I think I did that right actually. You're, you're in this thing where you go, I love God, which allows me and causes me to love all of you, which is the evidence that I actually love him. But you know what we want is we want a different set of identifying markers for ourselves. We want to compile a resume of the things that we like to do 
and the things that we are good at and the things that our personalities naturally bend towards and go, here is the evidence, God, that I love you. I cast out demons in your name, some will say. I perform miracles in your name, others will say. Great acts of service. I read my Bible a lot. I spent a lot of time in prayer. And the callback is not, that's not enough. The callback is, you're in the wrong family. Depart from me because I don't know you. There's no intimacy. You haven't been brought into this thing. When you're brought into this thing, God puts you into a whole new system apart from the world. And he says, if you know me, then you love me. And if you love me, then you love my children. And loving my children is the evidence that you love me. And if you don't love me, then you can't love my children. And if you can't love my children, then you don't love me. This is love. God loves us. This is love. God loves you. He loves you. Just for a moment, think about yourself. It's a refreshing change in church, right? Oh, think about me, okay. <laughs> Actually think about yourself, though. Like the you that nobody else knows about, the you that doesn't get Instagrammed, the you that doubts and struggles and sins. And I'm not talking about the sins that you confess openly and you're like, I just need you guys to pray for me because I'm just being way too humble here lately and people are taking advantage of me and I just need God to help me, you know. I'm talking about the stuff you don't tell anybody, that you don't even talk about with God. He knows you and he loves you. That's what love is. He actually knows who you are, all of it, and he loves you. You know the real you, so does God. And he really loves the real you. Isn't that something? It's really something. He really loves the real you, who you really are. So how do we love God? We keep his commands. This is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God, and obey his commands. See, it's just like, how do I love God? Love his children. How do I know that I'm loving him? Love his children and obey his commands. What, is, what are his commands? To love him and to love his children. That's why you get tongue-tied, because it just goes like this. It just keeps going like this. What does God expect from you? What does God want from you? What's the big list of things that you think God is up in heaven with his arms crossed and his foot tapping, and he's like, is Raiden ever gonna get it together? He missed his quiet time again this morning. He didn't open his Bible at all, and he didn't spend three hours in prayer. There he is eating cereal. He's not fasting today, so I guess we're not doing that. He didn't go door to door and share his testimony with every person on his street. It's been a while since he went on any kind of a real mission trip maybe he's gonna serve some poor people or something. What does God want from you? 
What does he want from you? How do you win? This is what we're asking. What are the rules to this game? How do we win this game that we are in? How do we even compete? How do we even play? Who's the opponent that we're playing against? How do we overcome? How do we get victory? How do we win? What does God expect from you? And the answer comes back frustratingly, love. That's what he expects from you. Love. That's what he expects. Love him, love people. That's how we win. And we go, okay, but can we like negotiate a little bit? Like, can I define how I love people? Can I determine what love looks like? No, this is how we know what love is. God sent his son to die for us. This is how love was revealed to us. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for us. The reason that we love is because we are loved, which means love is a very particular thing and I am not a sufficient container. I'm meant to be conduit. I'm meant to be the point of connection for others to receive love. I don't think I've ever been more frustrated in my life. That's not true, I have been, but in the moment it was pretty frustrating. I was on a run in Lake of the Ozarks and I came across this giant water tower that had a water fountain that's like 20 feet from it. And I was like, oh baby, this is perfect. Because I just went on a run, I had a day off and I was just on a run, no plan. And I was pretty deep into the run and I had no water with me, which is a bad strategy. And so I find the water fountain, I'm like, glory, glory. I go up to the water fountain, I push the button and nothing comes out. And I was like, you're so close to the water. You're so close, you're just not tapped in. That's just, that's just my story way too many times, guys. You're not a manufacturer of love. You're a recipient and a donator. Like you receive it and you give it. You don't produce it in yourself. You can be a water fountain that's just feet away from a water tower, but if it's not connected, it can't give you anything. Verse four, John says, everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. I'm like, yeah, baby, this is the one that Christian athletes get tattooed on their arms, a whole sleeve about conquering the world. I'm gonna go out and hit home runs in Jesus' name and knock out my boxing opponent in Jesus' name and I'm gonna win gold medals in Jesus' name. And listen, if you wanna win gold medals in Jesus' name, go for it. If you are an athlete, you wanna hit home runs in Jesus' name, go for it. I watched a wrestler from Penn State. Man, I really try to not like Penn State wrestling because I'm an Oklahoma State guy, but goodness, they got some good guys there. And after he finishes, he wins the national championship and they interview him and he's like, they're like, how did you do it and how do you feel and what's amazing and what's great? And the guy gets the mic and he's like, let me tell you something, Jesus Christ is the true victor. Jesus Christ is the true champion. He conquered death and sin. He died on a cross for my sins. He rose victoriously from death. And if you don't believe that, you cannot make it to heaven. And the, the interviewer was like, okay, but it was a really good double leg that you had. And 
how do you feel about that? And he was like, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit of God because Jesus Christ, like, and the interviewer was like, well, I can tell that your faith is very important to you. And he's like, it's the only thing that matters. I'm doing all this for God's glory. And Jesus Christ has done all this and more for me. And it was like, yeah, if you want to do that, that's fantastic. But let's be really clear right here. John is not saying that if you have faith, God will let you hit home runs or knock people out or win gold medals. That's not what's being talked about right here. I like to win as much as anybody likes to win. And I love it that everyone who's been born of God conquers the world. You know why? Because I've been born of God. I'm a follower of Jesus. I belong to him and he belongs to me. You know what that means? I'm more than a conqueror. And I have overcome the world. It doesn't always feel like that in the everyday experience, though. So I wonder what it means when it says this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Everyone born of God conquers the world. It doesn't sound bad. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like Acts 1-6 to me. Acts 1-6. Let's just flip backwards to Acts chapter 1, verse 6, because this, this is what it sounds like to me. In Acts chapter one, what's happening is Jesus has resurrected from death, which is pretty cool. And uh, we talked about that last week. If you weren't here, you should check it out on the podcast. He resurrects and then he starts hanging out with people, which is what you do after you resurrect. And you let him investigate and you let him talk to you. In Acts chapter one and verse six, Jesus is with his disciples. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? We are conquering the world. This is the victory that super conquers the world. That's the word right there, that hyper conquers. By the way, it's Nike, not Nike. It's a Greek word, Nike. And she supposedly was a goddess who helped Zeus beat some other fake gods in some kind of a fake battle that was all myth. But if you want to be super victorious, you have to understand it comes through our faith. Do we finally get to crush our opponents and rule? Do we finally get to crush our opponents and rule the world? And Jesus says, yes. Sort of. But not like you're thinking right now. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, Paul talks about it a little bit. To the church at Ephesus, he says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, this is important, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. There's a cosmic spiritual reality that we often ignore. Spiritual warfare generally has two extremes. When we talk about spiritual warfare, the two extremes are obsess and ignore. 
obsess is when you see a demon behind every rock. When the mic stops working, you're like, the devil's attacking our sound system. I promise, the devil has better things to do than mess with our sound system today. Ignore is when we live as if the only thing that's real and true are the things that we can experience with our five senses and there are no spiritual forces at play. The world, as being described here, the world, this idea in Greek thought is everything that is in the created order that has fallen and has set itself in opposition to God. There's been power that's been given by God to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the one who has some dominion and some authority for some time has created a system that's based on lies. You know, what, you know what Jesus said about Satan? He always lies. He's the father of lies. So when he's lying, he's speaking his native tongue. And the world has created these systems of lies that we get into and we believe and we buy into and we operate inside of and they're all empty promises. Every lie that Satan tells, it's an empty promise. If you just take this path, you'll find fulfillment. If you just take this path, you'll find purpose. If you just take this path, you'll find meaning and significance. You'll find community and friendship and family. You'll finally feel okay inside of your own skin and inside of your own body if you just do the following things. This is the world. This is what the world communicates to us. I was writing down a few thoughts last night uh, and, and had to cut that experience a little bit short, but I wrote down three empty promises that the world makes. The first empty promise I wrote down is, uh, these, this is not meant to be all-encompassing, by the way. Just sometimes people like a little bit of lists, so I'm gonna throw them in there. The first lie is, your heart is trustworthy, and following it will lead you to joy. This is what the world tells you. Whatever is in your heart you have to follow that, man, and you have to surround yourself with people that encourage you to follow that, and the end of that rainbow journey is a big old pot of joy that your heart is trustworthy, and it will lead you to joy. But what God says is your heart is deceptive, deceitful, and wicked. In fact, it's filled with more wickedness than anything. The second one is this. Love is easy. And if you have to work at it, then it isn't love. And yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus struggles with the love that he's about to demonstrate and says to his father, if it's possible, would you let this cup pass from me? He's under such an intense burden of stress and anxiety and grief that the capillaries in his face burst, causing him to sweat blood and tears under extreme duress, he obeyed because he loved. The third lie is truth is personal and every person's truth is equally valid and true. But what God says is, my word is truth. Our faith has conquered the world. You know what that means? That means when I've placed my faith in Jesus, I'm no longer a slave to my sin 
and I'm no longer a slave to that system of false belief. By faith in what Jesus has done for me, I joined the winning team, and the enemy leading that team stands as a defeated foe. All that's left is to run out the clock and just keep playing the game. Our faith has conquered the world. John Mark Comer in his book, or Comer, or I don't know how to say his name. It sounds fancy to say Comer. It's probably not right, but his book, Live No Lies, he says this, our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and liberate them with the weapon of truth. Jesus said of himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Our faith in Jesus conquers the world because his victory becomes our victory. If I inherit $50 million, $50 billion, let's go big. We're just, we're just having fun here. $50 billion. You know what that means? That means my children are going to be rich. They get to experience all that $50 billion can bring materially. But they don't possess it until I pass it. It's all theirs. It's already won. Our victory is faith in Jesus. I like this quote that I read from Warren Wearsby. He said, faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It's obeying in spite of consequence. That's what faith is. Faith says, I'm gonna do what I'm supposed to do regardless of the consequences that it brings to my life because I believe that this is what Jesus has commanded of me. When Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points in one game, after the game, one of his teammates was interviewed and was asked, what do you think the historical significance of this night will be? And his answer was legendary. It's so legendary that some people think this interview didn't actually happen, so I just wanna have a caveat that this might be one of those pastor things that's not actually true. I try to tell you when I think that's the case. But his teammate said, uh, tonight will go down in history as the night Wilt Chamberlain and I combined for 102 points in a single game. <laughs> to me, this is sort of what it feels like to win with Jesus. He already, he already did everything that had to be done. I get to enjoy it. I get to participate in it. I get to be set free from a world that says you're only worthy of love if you demonstrate your worth. You're only worthy of love if you will love me. You're only worthy of love so long as you're loyal to me. You're only worthy of my love so long as you endorse everything that I do, everything that I say, and everything that I believe. You're only worthy of love so long as your narrative fits in line perfectly with my narrative. You're only worthy of love so long as you will unquestionably love, accept, and endorse every piece of who I am. That's the only time that you can have my love. We've been set free from that. 
Revelation 12, 11. So this great, Revelation 12, this great passage, the beast gets thrown down, like the conquering is taking place. And there's this beautiful phrase in Revelation 12, 11. It says, we will overcome. By the way, every single letter in Revelation to the churches, John the Revelator records Jesus writing to the churches and the overcomers, the victors. And the victors are pictured in Revelation 12, 11. And by the way, listen, like this, if everything else is boring, this should make you like, like I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. That someday at the final defeat, here's what we'll say. We have overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. This is all that is required for sharing the gospel. This is all that's required. The word of your testimony. The blood of the lamb creates the testimony. You don't need to know every single answer. You don't need to have every verse memorized, but you do need to be able to say, I was this, I met Jesus, and he did this, and now I am this. I have a story. How do we overcome this devil? How do we overcome Satan? How do we overcome this constructed world, the principalities and powers that set themselves in opposition to God? How do we overcome this incredible system that has ruled mankind? How do we finally win? By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. That's how we win. We win by saying, Jesus Christ has died for me. His blood created a new covenant for me to be brought back into the family of God for Forever. That's all that's required. That's it. And that's what throws down the enemy. That's what does it. Who conquers? Who wins? How? Those who have faith. Verses five um, on down for a little while through nine, they say, who's the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? That's, listen, it doesn't matter how small you are. It doesn't matter how insignificant you are. It doesn't matter how weak you are. It doesn't matter how poor you are. It doesn't matter how destitute you are. It doesn't matter if you're tall or short or skinny or fat, if you're dumb or brilliant. It doesn't matter if you are impoverished to the lowest level or the richest person on the face of the planet. There's only one way that you can overcome. There's only one way that you can win. Who's the one who conquers the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Just really quickly, there was a heresy that existed that John's confronting here that said Jesus was just a regular person and then at his baptism he became like real Jesus that we know. But before his death, he stopped being real Jesus because God couldn't die and so he left and, and then he's no longer real Jesus until the resurrection, he comes back to that body. And John's confronting this heresy and he's saying, no, he's born by water. He was actually born, he was physically born. Born by blood, he actually bled and was born into death so that he'd be born into resurrection life. And the spirit testifies about this, which I think, by the way, is kind of fascinating. 
The John says there's three things that testify about the truth of Jesus, the water, the blood, and the spirit, meaning he actually lived, he actually died, he actually resurrected, and the thing that confirms all of it and seals all of it is the Holy Spirit of God. He doesn't say you can go to the Bible and prove that you're a Christian. He says the Holy Spirit seals all of that. The Holy Spirit is the one who testifies to all of that. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God exists to tell the truth about Jesus. Anyone who tells the truth about Jesus is only repeating what the Spirit of God has told them. Do you remember when Peter is talking to Jesus and Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Jesus talking to his disciples. Well, some say you're John, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet. You know, they have a lot of theories about this and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father who is in heaven. Anyone who testifies the truth about Jesus does so because the Spirit of God has spoken inside of them. That is the seal. The Holy Spirit is the seal. Verse 10 says, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him, has made God, that's saying, a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. There's only two options. Either Jesus really is the savior of the world or he isn't the savior of the world. And what does God have to say about it? God says he is the savior of the world. The Holy Spirit keeps communicating that same message over and over and over again. And any of you who have given your lives to Jesus, any of you who have been brought from death to life, have been brought because the Spirit of God said, it's true. And you were like, oh, it really is true. I didn't believe it, and now I believe it. Why do I believe it? Because I believe what God's Spirit has said about it. It's, it's really very frustratingly basic and repetitive. All of it is saying the same thing. God has this one thing to say to us, this one thing to reveal to us, this one eternal important truth that it really is all about Jesus and who he really is and what he really did. And the Holy Spirit just keeps saying it over and over and over and over again. And everyone who believes is brought into the family and everyone who doesn't believe says, you're lying. It's not true. You're lying. And not only are you lying, but God is lying. He's lying when he says it. Those are the only two options. And this is the testimony. This is it. We overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And what is our testimony? Guys, what's the fundamental thing that you and I are saying about being a Christian. Here's what it is. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. That's it. It's not complex. That doesn't mean that it's easy to believe. But when you hear the Spirit say it and you believe what the Spirit is testifying about, then it's very easy to believe. 
This is the testimony. This is what God is saying. In some ways, you could really, like a lot of other passages, say, I don't know if we need all the other stuff that's in the Bible. This is really what the testimony is. God has given you eternal life, and this life is in his son. God has given me eternal life, and it can only be obtained by faith in Jesus. It's the only way to have eternal life. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. I mean, John is, he's like, how, how simple can I make this? If you think it's frustrating to read or to preach or to think through, if you think it's repetitive, imagine being the guy who's writing it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Like, I mean, is John writing and going like, I mean, I think they got it, you know? <laughs> like, we're kind of saying the same thing over and over again. This isn't really a page turner. This is like the same exact thing. The only way to have eternal life is through the Son. If you have the Son, you have life. And it follows, if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Have we driven the point home enough? I don't know, have we? I was once asked by somebody uh, at a previous church, when are you going to stop preaching this, like the gospel? And I was like, well, I guess when I die, but I think I'll still be talking about it in heaven. So never. I'll be preaching the gospel forever. He asked one of my other pastors, my boss actually, he's like, Raiden's a great preacher, but he, how long is he gonna keep preaching the gospel? And his answer was better. He goes, until you believe it. He's gonna keep preaching it until you believe it. And then guess what? Once you believe it, you love to hear it. And the reason you love to hear it, people who love the gospel have gotten really acquainted with who they actually are. I've gotten really acquainted with who I actually am. I know my capacity for good, it's not much. I know my capacity for prolonged perfection, it's non-existent. And yet, Jesus brought me into the family, made me a conqueror of the system that had conquered me, gave me victory where all I had ever known was defeat. How did I overcome? By the blood of the lamb, the word of my testimony. And what's my testimony? This is my testimony. God has given me eternal life. And that life is through his son, Jesus Christ. I have the son, so I have life. If you don't have the son, then you do not have life. And John says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I think one of the worst distractions that can happen to a follower of Jesus is when they go through those seasons of doubt and like, am I really a Christian? I had a young lady once come to me and she's like, I'm, I'm really, I'm struggling. I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. We'll call her Rachel because her name is Rachel. <laughs> it's okay, you don't know her. Some of you know her, but the rest of you don't. She's like, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. And I was like, well, let's talk about it. She's like, okay. I said, do you love God? She's like, yes, I love God. Do you love people? Yes, I love, I love people, okay? Um, you seem to like coming to church because you're here a lot. I love coming to church. I've observed you during worship and you're not like disengaged, bored, you know, like some people in worship, not anybody here obviously, but sometimes I wanna go up to people like, do you believe what you're saying? Because if so, could you let your face know? 
I don't think your face knows that you believe what you're singing right now. It's like, you seem pretty animated. She's like, I love to worship God. Well, tell me about, like, do you open the Bible? Do you read? I love the Bible. I was like, well, you might be lost, but if you are, you're the weirdest lost person I've ever heard of. You love God, you love God's people, you love to worship him, you love to talk to him, you love to listen to him, you love to follow him and to obey him. I'm not sure what else you're looking for. Listen, it's not bad to go through a season of doubt, but it's bad to stay in a season of doubt. It's not bad. I have discovered, I have discovered multiple times. Sometimes you just get a little bit lost. You know what I'm saying? Like when you're driving around, it can happen and you get a little bit lost. And if you get a little bit lost, you know what you should do? You should go to the directions and say, did I go the right way or did I not go the right way? Is there any information that could shed light on my confusion? Right here, John says, I have written these things to you who do believe, those of you who are Christians, so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's yours forever. You're going to live forever. You and I, in just a few moments, you and I are gonna take the Lord's Supper together. We're gonna crack that little you know, top off the thing. We're gonna eat the small piece of asbestos styrofoam. I don't think it's really asbestos, but it might be styrofoam. We're gonna drink a little bit of the, the juice, and all it is is a foretaste of what, heaven will be because one of the things that heaven is called is the wedding banquet of the lamb where we'll sit at a table together, you and me, you and me, we'll sit at a table together with Jesus, with the guy who wrote this book, with Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy. Billy Graham will be there. Lottie Moon will be there great women and great men of faith, some of whom died as martyrs, burned alive, torn apart by beasts, laying down their life because they believed in spite of consequences. We'll break bread together in heaven, you and I. This doesn't end for us. It only gets better for us. This is our victory. The veil's torn, the mystery's been solved, the truth has been revealed. If you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. And these things have been written so that you may have confidence, so that you may know, not wonder, so that you may know, not think, so that you may know with absolute certainty you have eternal life. I wanna move into our moment of response and I want to just ask you one simple question. Do you have the son? Do you have the son? If you have the son, you have life. That's your testimony. That's how you overcome. I have the son, so I have life. If you do not have the son, I've got great news for you. He takes all comers. <laughs> Romans ten thirteen. There's no criteria to meet. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone and everyone. You can get in on this. This is not too late. You can be brought into a family. And loser that you are, loser that I am, because let me tell you something really plainly, 
The gospel is not for winners. It's not for healthy people. It's not for people who have enough and are satisfied. It's for people who are honest and know that they're needy. He'll meet you right there in that need. Take you exactly as you are. Bring you into his family. And begin conforming you into his image. So if you're here this morning and you want to trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that now. Those of us who are here who have been more than conquerors, maybe it's a good moment for us to suit back up. Remember that we don't conquer the world by our effort. We don't conquer the world by our intelligence. We don't conquer the world by our goodness. We don't conquer the world by our sacrifice. Jesus conquered the world for us. We conquer the world through our connection, our intimacy, and our faith in him. That's how we win. It's about Jesus. Let's pray. You respond as the Lord leads. Well, God, thank you for giving me a voice this morning. Thank you for giving me ears that can hear, a mouth that can speak, and eyes that can see. It's easy to take things for granted. It's easy to believe for me, God, that it's my goodness, my cleverness, my talent, my skill, my determination that will be what ultimately wins the fight. And <laughs> the fight's already over. You've made me more than a conqueror. You've made us the super victors. Holy Spirit, I need you to do this morning what I could not. Make much of Jesus. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our mouths. Give us the sun. We know, God, you did not spare your own son. With him, you gave us all things. We believe there's goodness planned for us. Not ease and comfort, goodness. And we believe we will see it in the land of the living. We love each other and we love you because you first loved us. Would you make us great recipients of love that we might be great givers of it as well. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things, amen. You ready? You can respond as the Lord leads. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's word together.